If you have a Bible, look, uh, look up Psalm 131. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue in this conversation that we've been calling Pilgrims. We've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, which run from Psalm 120 to 134, kind of this unique, interesting subsection of the Psalms. What we've learned so far is that, uh, among other things, these were songs that were sung by Hebrew pilgrims. That's where we get the title for the series. As they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals of the year, Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles. And what they would do as they, as they made their way to Jerusalem, particularly as they got close and there was a bunch of people all together making their way up the hill, ascending up to Jerusalem, they would be singing these 15 psalms together. And so one thing that we've been doing, I think it's been a good and fun practice for us, is to just read them out loud together. So we're going to do that again this morning. Even as you're looking for that in your own Bible, read with me on the screen. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, please raise your hand. One of our ushers would love to get that to you. And again, those Bibles are, are for you. If you do not own a physical Bible and you want one, please take that with you this morning. Those are a, a gift from us to you. Now, before we get started here, let's just take a moment and pray, and then we'll begin our conversation on Psalm 131. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be together and to be your church, the, the body of Christ made real in a community. Thank you for the opportunities to, uh, to get backpacks and to uh, be a blessing to our neighbors in Reading and all the other things that you've invited us to be a part of, God. We want to be good stewards. We want to be, uh, again, a community that represents Jesus well. And so please help us in those efforts. Now, God, as we turn our attention to Scripture, would you soften our hearts would you take whatever burdens or troubles or worries we carry in with us this morning, would you hold those for us during this time so that we can hear from you? And would you give us the courage to respond in the way that we need to respond today? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, when I was a kid, one of the punishments that I, I received for misbehavior was to be sent to my room. Anybody ever get sent to their room? A few of us had to do that. Okay, I just had to do that this morning to one of my children, so it's a good time. As an introvert, getting sent to my room, not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but still, being sent to your room was, was meant to do a couple of things, right? It, it was meant to provide you an opportunity to recalibrate your heart, kind of get yourself right before re-engaging with the rest of the family, and then it was also about missing out on something. And... For me, I don't know what it was for you, but for me, sometimes that meant dessert, sometimes that meant watching TV, sometimes that meant just getting to go outside and run around, do whatever I, I like to do, or you know, miss out on something that the family was doing. But there was this element of, of deprivation, right? I might be missing out on something cool by this forced exile. <laughs> Researcher and psychologist Gene Twang writes that today's teens don't necessarily see this as punishment because in their rooms, they have access to the entire world. 
And so she's written an article. It came out about a year ago. It has this very sensational title, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Right? Uh, this, is, this is all about, you know, getting us scared about our smartphones. And we all know that that can be a very easy target when it comes to identifying one singular problem with our world. But she, she does a really great job of describing uh, some of the issues that come up with this. Okay, she writes, more comfortable in their bedrooms than in a car or at a party, today's teens are physically safer than teens have ever been. Psychologically, however, they are more vulnerable than millennials were. And one of the things that she's done, she's kind of at the forefront of naming the next generation. So she calls it iGen. She says, rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of one of the worst mental health crises in decades, and much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. She goes on to say, no single factor ever defines a generation, but the twin rise of the smartphone and social media has caused an earthquake of a magnitude we've not seen in a very long time, if ever. There is compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. All right, some strong words there. Now, smartphones and, and social media have great benefits. They also, I think, help us numb and escape and, quite honestly, sin more effectively than maybe some previous technologies that we've had. But the underlying issue there is not new to this particular generation. The underlying issue is one that human beings have struggled with ever since the fall. Genesis chapter 3, a rebellion against God there's been this underlying issue with us, and I think Henry Nouwen does a great job of giving words to this. And he wrote this over 40 years ago, well before smartphones and social media. He says, as long as we are trying to run away from our loneliness, we're constantly looking for distractions with the inexhaustible need to be entertained and kept busy. We become the passive victims of a world asking for our idolizing attention, our lives become a spastic and often destructive sequence of actions and reactions, pulling us away from our inner selves. And I want us to grab onto that last phrase there, pulling us away from our inner selves. Yeah, this pull away from, our, from what's going on inside of us, from what we might call our soul, is a discipleship issue. Now remember, the central theme of this pilgrim series has been this word, this idea, discipleship, and we've been using a very broad definition, right? Discipleship is formation into a way of life. And so our, our inability to be alone, our pull away from our inner selves, is a discipleship issue. And I would argue it's a reflection of a deep mistrust of God, and it raises the question for us yet again, what is really forming us? What is really shaping us? What is really discipling us? This is, these are questions that I think Psalm 131 speaks very clearly to. So verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, to our modern ears, this is a weird thing to say. Nobody talks like this, right? Tweet that verse and see what kind of response you get. 
is jarring to us because we're, we're taught to talk about what we do and who we are, the things that we're for, to speak in the positive, right? But here we have, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. There's actually a, a, a rich tradition in Christianity called apophatic theology. Apophatic theology speaks of the truth, defines the truth through the negative. So whether you're talking about God or justice or love, you would talk about that by explaining what it is not. That's apophatic theology. A classic apophatic text is the children's book, Are You My Mother? Anybody had to read this book? (laughs) A few? I've had to read this book so many times. Practically have it memorized. If you're unfamiliar with this book, here's how it goes, okay? There's a mama bird sitting on an egg. She realizes the egg is about to hatch, and so she goes off looking for food. And while she's away looking for food, the baby bird hatches out of the egg. This is actually a terrifying story if you really think about it, okay? So he he pops out of the egg, and he's like, where's my mom? And he goes on this journey to try to find his mom. He jumps out of that nest, and on his journey, he meets... A kitten, a dog, a cow, a car, a plane, even this big thing called a snort. And if you're reading this book to a two-year-old or a three-year-old, this is the comedic heart of the book. The snort, always good for a laugh, at least in our house. <laughs> now, at the end of the book, it, it, it is a happy ending. The bird, little bird is united with his mom. And in that moment, she says, do you know who I am? And he says... Yes, and the way that he answers this question is so interesting. He says, you are not a kitten, a dog, a cow, a car, a plane, or a snort. You are a bird, and you are my mother, okay? Apophatic theology. This is, my kids are so messed up because I I teach them about this stuff as we're reading. (laughs) Kids, but I apologize to them. All right, apophatic theology, defining something in the negative. Here is, this is what is happening, I think, at the beginning of Psalm 131. The author here is King David, all right, a significant figure. Some people would argue the most significant figure in the Old Testament, saying, you know, my thoughts are not too high. My eyes are not raised too high. And this is interesting. I think he's using this as a way to speak to some of his deepest aspirations because we all know you can't just come out and say, I'm really humble. I'm the king, but I'm super humble, right? You can't really say that. (laughs) So you have to come at it indirectly. And this is what David is doing. My heart is not too proud. My eyes are not too haughty. I do not have an overinflated sense of self-importance. I'm striving for humility. Now, there's another reason, I think, why this opening verse is unsettling to us, and it's because our culture constantly invites us to Shoot for the stars, to be awesome, do something great with your life, do it all, have it all. We want our hearts and spirits to be lifted. We want an exciting life. We want to be where the action is. We, we have FOMO, right? We have this fear of missing out. There might be something amazing going on, and I want to be a part of that. But David says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And again, it's so interesting to me that it's David who's writing these words. In so many ways, David lived, led a life of very significant achievement, right? He went from shepherd, 
the youngest in his family, this lowly shepherd, to being the king of Israel. And he was the second king, and he was a king at a time when, uh, when Israel was, was in disarray. And there was even a really big question as to whether or not the project of this kingdom would, would work or would it totally fail. And so he brought stability, he brought peace, he expanded the borders, he united the kingdom, and he even had bigger dreams than that. He had this dream of building a temple. The temple, in fact, that these Hebrew pilgrims were traveling to as they were singing this psalm. So David did great things, accomplished great things, had aspirations for his life, but he was also extremely patient. David was anointed to be king as a relatively young boy. We read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But then he doesn't become king until much later. All the way in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he finally becomes the king. And in between that, a lot of different things happen. Some of them very famous moments in his life. He fights Goliath. He gets married. He has to flee for his life. He fights all these battles. He becomes a sort of folk hero for the, the battles that he wins. And in the middle of all of that, he has a chance twice to take over the kingdom by force. Two times Saul, who was the king at the time, uh, is sort of in David's presence in a, in a way that David could have just taken him out and become the king. We read about that in, in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. Now, applying our cultural ideals to that situation, we, we might have said things like, of course he would do that. Of course he would take Saul out. Like, be assertive. Stand up for yourself. Get yours. Do you, Dave. Now, hold on to that thought for a minute. We, we have all these big questions that we wrestle with in life, right? Who are we going to marry where are we going to live? What kind of job are we going to take? How are we going to pay for college? When should we retire? These really big questions in life. Wouldn't you love the assurance that David had? David knew where he was going. He knew where his life was going to end up. And yet, he was so patient on God's timing. I think David's story and, and Psalm 131 illustrate for us the difference between ambition and aspiration. I think this is a, a tension that many of us feel. Aspiration is the God-given drive to create, to make something, to contribute something with our life. Ambition, though, is unchecked aspiration. It's fueled by pride, and it's born out of this fear that my life might not matter apart from what I'm able to accomplish. Aspirations are God-fueled and God-sustained. They bring God glory. Ambition is self-driven and self-sustained and are all about bringing ourselves the glory. Aspiration comes from rightly understanding who we are, that we are God's children, that we are made in his image, that we are invited to be a part of what he is doing in the world. We're invited to participate in his mission of restoration Ambition comes from wrongly putting ourselves at the center of the action. And life becomes about our mission and our goals and our desires. Now, I don't think that what David is doing in Psalm 131 is downplaying his aspirations. His, uh, the 
calling that God had placed on his life to be a king. But what he is doing is rightly placing himself in submission to the God who truly is at the center of the action. Now look at what he says next. Verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now the phrase that stands out here to me is that is this calm and quiet soul. I read that and I go, oh, I want that so bad. I don't know about you, but it's very rare that my soul feels calm and quiet, right? Now the picture that David paints for us here is of a weaned child. And this is, again, maybe a strange image for us depending on what stage of life we are at. But what David is doing here is using a natural process to describe a spiritual truth. Those of you who have had babies know that when a newborn is hungry, it is the opposite of calm and quiet, right? And that's totally fine. That, that, that's a good thing developmentally because that's how a baby communicates. That's how it lets you know that it needs something, that it needs some food. But as children grow and mature, they hopefully become less and less like a fussy baby, hopefully, right? <laughs> Same thing with us. As we grow and mature, we grow in trust. Trust that our parents will serve us that next meal. Trust that we're going to be taken care of. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. The longer we journey with God, the deeper our trust becomes, the more we're able to say with confidence, my soul is calm and quiet because I know who's taking care of me. And man, do we need more calm and quiet souls in our worlds, in our culture, even in our churches. There is so much noise. So calm and quiet souls can be hard to find. Now you may know someone like this. And I think you, you, it's, this is something that you just sort of know intuitively. Like when you're in a presence of someone whose soul is calm and quiet, you just, you're like, oh, this is, this is a good place to be. And what I see is I see a lot of people seeking this type of person. We want a calm and quiet soul in our life that we can latch on to for help, for mentoring, for discipleship. And on the surface, that is great. Find that kind of person. There's tremendous wisdom in seeking out counsel. But what I, what I also see is that sometimes the energy behind seeking out that kind of person comes from this reality that our souls are not calm and quiet, and we just want someone to fix us. just want someone to sort of wave a magic wand over whatever turmoil is going on in there and make it all go away. And I think the problem here is that we lack a bigger vision for our lives, a vision that understands that as we grow as disciples of Jesus, we are supposed to become the kinds of people who have calmed and quieted souls so that we can love and serve and sacrifice for others. This is so critical to this process of discipleship because we want the help, we want to be invested in, and again, that's a good impulse, but then we rarely take the turn to self-sustainability so that we can love and serve other people. Let me say it this way. I want to take care of my kids. My kids are, are three and five. They're about to turn four and six. They obviously need me. 
at this point to help take care of them. And as Amy and I do that, I want them to grow in trust for us. I want them to hopefully learn something good from us along the way. But I also want them to get to the point where they don't need us anymore. Where they can take care of themselves and not just that. That's sort of the, the, the minimum bar. What I really want for them is for them to be able to take care of other people. Not just move out of my house, but go and create a home where they're taking care of other people. That's the goal of parenting. We see this theme repeated a lot in the New Testament. We read things like this. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. A great word of encouragement there for the Corinthians. <laughs> In another letter, we read this. You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. I want you to remember that phrase. You ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now that phrase, you ought to be able to teach. Sometimes we hear that and we think that means that you have to be able to get up on Sunday morning and give a sermon. That's not what that means. Okay, to teach is simply to be able to take what you have learned and, and offer it to someone else to help someone else move forward in their discipleship journey. And so if we are going to grow as disciples of Jesus, we have to move in that direction from milk to meat, from being fed to feeding ourselves, and then not stopping there, but from feeding ourselves to be able to feed someone else. One more, uh, one more silly analogy, bear with me here, okay? We all want Yoda, right? Who doesn't want a Yoda in their life? But the goal is not just to find a Yoda, it is to become Yoda for someone else. Are you with me? And we'll never be able to say that we have calm and quiet souls until our lives become oriented around something bigger than ourselves, and this is where David goes next. Look at verse 3. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hoping in the Lord, by definition, moves us outside of ourselves, orients us around something bigger than what is just going on with us. When we hope in the Lord, we give up control of our lives. We recognize that we are not able to do all things, be all things. And this recognition of our limits is so important to cultivating a quiet and calm soul. Far too often we build our lives with very little margin, with no limits. And the root of that, I think, is a hope that's placed not in the Lord but in ourselves. That's a misplaced hope. That's a reflection of, of pride and lack of humility thinking that we need to do everything. Real simple definition of humility is that it's hoping and trusting in the Lord. In Psalm 130, the one that comes immediately before this, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord 
same, same idea. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And I love that phrase, plentiful redemption. With the Lord there is more than enough. You don't need to live with no margin or no limits because there's more than enough. We do not live in a universe that's defined by scarcity. Plentiful redemption. Now, we've been looking at the words of David, and David is a good example for us. Again, this massive figure in the Old Testament. But David fails over and over and over again. And in so many ways, David is simply someone who points us towards Jesus, towards the truth that we need a Savior. And Jesus is fascinating as well because he had aspirations, right? He built a team. He started a movement that continues on to this very day. He confronted the powers of his day. And he overcame, of course, sin and death. And yet Jesus, so humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is that death that demonstrates so clearly the plentiful redemption, the steadfast love of the Lord that we can ground our hope in. It is the cross that gives us hope. It is the cross that brings us peace because what it says is it's not on us. You are not the Savior. It's not on you to make everything right, to change the world, to do all the things. And so we can live with peace. We can live with this healthy tension between humility and aspiration because of the cross, because Jesus has done the work for us. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Back to Henry Nouwen just for a moment. He says, The movement from loneliness to solitude should lead to a gradual conversion from an anxious reaction to elastic reactions which make us prisoners of our constantly changing world, but in solitude of heart we can pay careful attention to the world and search for an honest, loving response. This is the arc of the discipleship journey, becoming the kind of person who can pay careful attention and know what an honest, loving response is. Because your soul is calm and quiet. Because your hope is in the Lord and not in something else. So how do we do this? How do we move from loneliness and anxiety and pride towards solitude and peace and humility? Well, it certainly begins with responding to the gospel. This good news that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that he gave his life up for us so that we might have relationship with God through the forgiveness of our sins because of his work, not because of our work. So it definitely begins there, and we need to revisit that truth again and again. And this is one of the reasons why we celebrate communion every Sunday when we gather to remind ourselves of this story, to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, that the work has been done for us. 
We don't have to earn this. We don't have to work harder. We don't have to do more things. Now, as we've been talking about discipleship for the last couple of weeks, the majority of this conversation has been on these really big questions. What are you being shaped and formed by? What do you behold? What is really discipling you? And these are great questions. These are questions that you need to spend some time, you know, sitting under a tree pondering. But I think it can also be very helpful to get to get really practical, and in particular, this idea of being a calm and quiet soul. How do we get to that place? Well, here are a couple of things that I think are important to consider. We need to take a long, hard look at how we've crafted our calendars. I can probably tell if you have a calm and quiet soul in about 10 seconds of looking at your schedule, and that's not because I'm so smart. It's just obvious. (laughs) If you're not taking time off, If you're working crazy hours, if you're spending little to no time alone, if you are not recreating, if you're always adding another event, another gathering, another activity, another Bible study, you are probably more fussy baby than calm soul. So the first practice is to eliminate something from your schedule. And I would encourage you to do this pretty regularly whether it's weekly or monthly, but take a look at that calendar and practice the spiritual discipline of saying no. Amy and I, we do this once a month. We have a calendar date, and part of it is just syncing up so that we have all the same information, but the other part of it is being able to evaluate what our calendar looks like so that we can say yes to the right things and no to things that may even be really good but are not going to be helpful to us individually or to our family as a whole. So practice the spiritual discipline of saying no. Second thing is set apart a true Sabbath. This is the flip of that. This is the spiritual discipline of saying yes, and in particular saying yes to God's rest. Now we did a series a couple months ago on Sabbath, so if you want a refresher, go back and listen to that. What I would say now is this. This can look very different for people. There's no... One size fits all way to Sabbath. You have to sort of figure out what practices work for you here. For some of us, we need a day to ourselves. For others, we need a day to connect with the people who are important in our lives. Some of us, we need a day to turn off our phone, to fast from news or social media or whatever it is that we use to fill in the the voids and gaps in our lives. Whatever that looks like for you, it should be a sacred time where you are able to do some inventory and be reminded that the world is going to keep spinning even if you're not pushing it. And that is actually a really great step towards humility. Now the third thing, I want to introduce you to the chair. There should be a picture of it here. <clears throat> I had this nasty old chair for about 30 years And uh, when we moved here, I finally ditched it. It was sort of a a moment for me. I had to get over that a little bit, seek some counseling. This is my my new chair. And this is where you'll find me almost every morning from about 6 a.m. to 6.45. And I, I get up before my kids get up, and I have a cup of coffee, and I spend some time reading, and I spend some time in prayer. And really the whole goal is just to have a moment of calm and quiet before the craziness of the day starts. And here's one of the keys. I do this before I check my phone or I open my laptop. 
Because what I've noticed is that when you do that, there's a lot of angry things yelling at you. It's hard to start your day off calm and quiet with your phone. And I, I cannot tell you just how important and vital this has been for me. I, I started this, doing this maybe four years ago after we'd gotten into the phase of life of having kids. And again, there, there's, this is maybe one of the two or three top things that have helped me uh, in my marriage, in my parenting of our kids, in my ministry and in work. This moment in the morning to start my day off, not with email or text messages, but in the chair with God, calming and quieting my soul. Now, again, this is one of those things where you don't have to do it the way that I do it. You have to sort of figure out what works for you. But I would give you three guidelines for whatever your chair time looks like. The first is this. Put it in your calendar. There should be a picture of of my calendar here. This is, I don't know if you guys can read that. This is October 2nd. And at the top, it says chair. And there's something about even just writing it down, putting that in there as a reminder, this is how I'm going to start my day. So make it intentional, write it down, or put it in your calendar, whatever that looks like for you. Second thing would be to make it regular and set apart. The reason I call it the chair is because there's something about having a physical spot that you go to. And maybe it's out on your deck Maybe it's, it's a route that you walk around your neighborhood or somewhere where you ride your bike, but make it a place where you can go, and, and there's something about having that place that I think engages our senses and, and helps us know this moment is sacred and important. And the third thing would just be to make it significant. 30 to 45 minutes is sort of what works for me. I would say that's probably the, the minimum. 10 minutes is, is not going to be enough time. All right, two more things here as we come in for a close. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And coming out of our prayer time, usually uh, Rolly and the band would be up here and they'd be beginning to lead us into a time of reflection and worship. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to hold two to three minutes of silence. And we're just going to practice this right here, right now, calming and quieting our souls. The second thing is you should have gotten when you came in this morning a a little card that has Psalm 131 printed on it. And if you didn't get one of those, grab one from the connection tent on your way out. But you'll notice that that card is roughly the size of a smartphone. Here's my challenge for you. For the next week, before you go to bed at night, Put that card over your phone so that when you get up in the morning, the first thing that you see and encounter is Psalm 131, this call to humility, to hoping in the Lord, to being a calm and quiet soul. Just see what that does for you, if that helps at all. Because here's the thing, guys. Our world desperately needs calmed and quieted souls. There's so much noise. There's so much talking. There's so many things going on. Our world needs calm and quiet souls who can lovingly and humbly point towards the hope that they have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm struck this morning that this psalm again was written by David. David who had so many things, he had access to everything at that 
moment in history. He had accomplished so much. He had things that he wanted to continue to achieve. All these desires uh, for what the future could hold. And he, he writes this incredible song about not being all caught up in that stuff. And desiring to be humble, to be a calm and quiet presence, placing his hope uh, in the Lord. So God, I know that we have so many things going on in our life, so many things pulling at us, uh, grabbing for our attention. May we be really good at saying no to things and yes to the right things. May we be carving out time, setting time aside to just be with you to remember that there is plentiful redemption. There's more than enough that you offer us. As we grow in that understanding, God, may we become the kind of people who are settled, who are centered, and who are able then to give tremendously to people who are broken and hurting. God, would you meet us now in the next couple of moments as we hold this silence together. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.